Airlines Confidential with Ben Baldanza and Scott McCartney is made possible with the support of Pratt & Whitney. Pratt & Whitney is committed to working smarter, cleaner, and greener today for a more sustainable tomorrow. Learn more at prattwhitney.com. And by Dewhop. Dewhop is revolutionizing travel connectivity. Learn how to unlock unlimited connections simply at dohop.com. We also welcome your business's support. Info at airlinesconfidential.com. Welcome to Airlines Confidential. I'm Ben Baldenza, and I'm sorry to say that we got snubbed at the Oscars again. No nominations this year, Scott McCartney, but we will have a great show this week. I guess we might have a better chance if there was a podcast category at the Oscars, right, Ben? Oh, well. We didn't come in first in the annual Wall Street Journal airline rankings either, but we will tell you who did, and we will have a first-rate, if not first-place, discussion with Dorothy Robine, an economist who is one of the finest thinkers in the business and always offers interesting insight on what's happening in transportation. I'm really looking forward to talking with Dorothy, who I've known since her work on the airline industry when she was in the White House working on FAA air traffic control issues. Huh, that was back in the Clinton White House. Same issues we're wringing our hands about today. Some things never change. I'm looking forward to an interesting discussion. But don't keep us in suspense. Who won the Wall Street Journal rankings this year? Delta Airlines. Again, third year in a row and six of the last seven for Delta. But let me start by saying that I'm very proud of these rankings, which I created 16 years ago and so thrilled that the journal has continued them after I left. The rankings are based on six operational categories that matter to travelers. It's data-driven. It has nothing to do with which airline has the best mood lighting or cheapest fares. Airlines pay attention and work all year to score well, which is really the benefit of all this to travelers. What's interesting in the rankings this year, however, is that there are chinks showing up in Delta's armor. Other airlines are catching up or even passing Delta in reliability. For example, Delta schooled the industry for several years on lowest rate of flight cancellations. But in 2023, Delta was number five out of nine airlines in completion factor. Alaska was number one. Allegiant was number two. Southwest number three and American number four. It says a lot about how those airlines have improved. Delta was also in fourth place on the rate of mishandled baggage. That's significant, but again, more a reflection of the industry catching up rather than Delta melting down. Delta was still number one in on-time arrivals for 2023, number one in the rate of involuntarily bumping passengers, and number two in extreme delays of 45 minutes or longer. Alaska was number two overall, and slap me, Ben, Allegiant was number three. 2020. Whoa. <laughs> I know. In 2022, 
Allegiant canceled a painful 4% of its flights, but only 1% last year. And Allegiant didn't bump a single passenger last year. That's a very strong showing for the very low-cost carrier. Southwest was number four in the ranking, dragged down by a higher rate of complaints filed at the Department of Transportation after its holiday fiasco at the end of 2022. American, which had long been at the bottom, really has improved its operation and climbed to number five ahead of United. Spirit and Frontier were seven and eight, and JetBlue was last, number nine. JetBlue was last in on-time arrivals, cancellations, two-hour tarmac sits, and extreme delays. The problem for JetBlue is New York. Much of its operation is in the Northeast, and it has been the main victim of air traffic control problems. I don't think you can lay all the blame on the FAA. It's not a surprise to JetBlue that it's located in New York. The airline is trying with a major reliability push underway, and there has been some improvement. After canceling more than 3% of its flights in 2022, JetBlue reduced that to 1.8% in 2023, and yet that was still worst in the industry. Well, Scott, it's encouraging that everyone is improving. Delta stays at the top, but if they don't improve, they're going to slip. Shocking about a legion, but kudos to them. I like this ranking, especially the point that looks at long delays over 45 minutes. Those are really what hurt customers. Yeah, absolutely. And that's why I put that in long ago. Um, I thought it was really interesting data. Uh, but also significant, and, and it gets equal weight with the, the overall on-time ranking that everybody looks at. Um, but when you're late 45 minutes, you may have missed a connection, you may be stuck overnight, you may miss your meeting. It, it, it really does impact people, and those are the delays that matter. Ben, we've also had a bunch of airlines report earnings in the past week or so, and the message has been, demand was strong, fingers crossed, it will continue. It's such an interesting time in the industry. Capacity increases are being trimmed thanks to delivery slowdowns at Boeing, plus delays at Airbus, plus the increasing impact of planes grounded for Pratt & Whitney engine repairs. So you'd think strong demand and crimped capacity would be a formula for higher ticket prices. Not so fast. Some carriers have trimmed their profit outlook for 2024, and not just because of higher costs from labor. They're saying pricing is weak, too. Travelers have gotten very fair conscious. Both United and American talked about growing percentages of customers buying basic economy fares. Some of that is because they continue to focus on leisure markets because business travel is still down from 2019 levels, which is even worse, as we've discussed, because the economy has grown since 2019. Some of that is also because bigger carriers seem to be taking customers from the discounters with basic economy pricing. I'll give you one little personal fare experience I found fascinating. 
Some listeners may know I commute from Dallas to North Carolina to teach at Duke University during the spring semester. I bought my tickets for February, March, and April last week, all on Southwest. I use TripIt to keep track of my travel and share plans with my wife, and TripIt Pro gives you alerts when fares fall. The fares were low to begin with, and then they got lower. I got alerts from TripIt because of price reductions on eight different trips, and now I have flight credits to use on Southwest, totaling $214. The savings was about 8%, an unexpected 8%. What a crazy industry this is. It sure is. And that's really interesting. It says that all the losses at the LCCs are because there are still too many seats. And with the crimping, of schedules. Maybe eventually it's going to come into balance again, but we're not there yet for sure. Yeah, yeah. Very interesting. So a couple of other news items of note. First, the FAA cleared the way for the 737 MAX 9 to return to flying once airlines have completed prescribed door plug inspections. The FAA also restricted Boeing's planned increase in 737 production, however. Boeing had planned to raise the number of 737s that it builds each month, but the FAA said no increase in production rate until it is convinced Boeing has the quality control issues in check. So there's part of our crimping of capacity. A story I'm sure our listeners will find fascinating. The Wall Street Journal reports that a commercial real estate investor and private pilot from Charleston, South Carolina, sold everything in 2021 to search for Amelia Earhart, and he may have indeed found the wreckage of her airplane. An underwater sonar drone came up with images that look like an airplane on the bottom of the Pacific Ocean in very deep water. Tony Romeo, yes, that's really his name is also a former U.S. Air Force intelligence officer. He plans to return to get better images. Experts say the location where he says the image was spotted is about right, and the images appear authentic. In 1937, at the dawn of modern aviation, Earhart set out to break the record flying around the world. She was an international sensation at the time. A U.S. Coast Guard ship was stationed near Howland Island, between Australia and Hawaii to support the mission, and a landing strip was cleared for her on the island. Earhart disappeared without a trace, leaving behind decades of mystery and intrigue. Many have tried to find her and failed. I look forward to hearing more. And and Ben, just a, a funny anecdote, I was one time in the FAA licensing office uh, for pilots in, in Oklahoma City, and they had Amelia Earhart's pilot's license framed on the wall. And, and I looked at it. I was fascinated. And, uh, and somebody there said, yeah, we found it washed up on a beach in Honolulu. And I thought a minute, and then I realized they were just pulling my leg. And perhaps just as intriguing a story, and perhaps just as intriguing a story, Frontier Airlines had a really interesting route announcement adding a bunch of flights to big cities, including big airline fortress hubs. 
At Dallas-Fort Worth, for example, Frontier will add 14 new routes out of DFW and offer about 28% more seats during the second quarter of this year versus the same period in 2023, according to data from aviation analytics firm Cerium. Frontier will fly from Charlotte, North Carolina, America's most profitable hub, to both Dallas and Chicago. Frontier is also adding flights at Delta hubs, Atlanta and Minneapolis. It will join the fray in the Los Angeles, San Francisco market. And by the way, Frontier will reduce flights to Las Vegas, Orlando and Cancun, leisure destinations where those big hub carriers have been adding flights on top of Frontier. So, Is this retaliation for the increased focus of Delta, American, United, and Southwest on ULCCs in leisure markets? Is this frontier chasing passengers in big cities, robbing banks because that's where the money is? Or is this frontier positioning itself in places where it expects spirit to shrink? What do you think, Ben? All three, Scott. But I think number one is trying to put pressure on spirit and push them even further into the brink. It's really interesting. Barry Biffle, the CEO at Frontier, when he was at Spirit, was always a fan of these kinds of roots. That's really fascinating and how interesting it's going to be to see how all this shakes out. Well, Airlines Confidential wouldn't exist without our sponsors. We want to thank Dohop, which is revolutionizing travel connectivity. Dohop is a travel technology provider enabling airlines to expand their networks, offer more connectivity, create additional partnerships, and focus on improving the customer experience with more offers, services, and travel options. Airlines benefit from generating additional revenue, lower costs, and maintaining full customer ownership. Plus, in the event of travel disruptions, Duhop works with airlines and offers assistance in helping passengers reach their final destination. Visit Duhop.com. That's D-O-H-O-P.com. And we want to thank Pratt & Whitney. At Pratt & Whitney, the pursuit of more sustainable aviation is foundational. For decades, Pratt & Whitney has been at the forefront of revolutionary advancements in aircraft propulsion technology. And by working smarter, cleaner, and greener today, they are committed to supporting the aviation industry in its goal of reaching net zero CO2 emissions by 2050. Learn more about Pratt & Whitney's smarter technology, cleaner fuel, and greener business at prattwhitney.com. Now let's bring in this week's guest, Dorothy Robine. Dorothy Robine is a public policy expert who writes and consults on transportation, energy, and telecommunications policy. She's currently a senior fellow at the Information Technology and Innovation Foundation and Boston University's Institute for Sustainable Energy. She's a member of two National Research Council standing boards and serves several administrations in roles at Defense, U.S. General Services Administration, and for eight years, Special Assistant to the President for Economic Policy on the staff of the White House National Economic Council. She's been an assistant professor at Harvard's Kennedy School of Government, 
a principal with the economic consultancy Brattle Group, and a guest scholar at the Brookings Institution. I have always found Dorothy to be one of the clearest, brightest thinkers on transportation issues, especially airlines, and it's a delight to talk with her today. Dorothy, you recently wrote a piece saying that U.S. airline consolidation hasn't harmed competition or consumers, which is especially timely given both the recent JetBlue Spirit court ruling and the essay in the New York Times by Columbia Law Professor Tim Wu. Wu argued that the bigger airlines get, the worse they become. Ben and I gave a counterpoint to that earlier, defending airline deregulation. So let's start with Wu, who you point out has been an architect of President Biden's more aggressive antitrust policy. What's wrong with the belief that consolidation has led to less competition among airlines? Uh, First of all, thanks to you, uh, to Ben and Scott, for having me here. This is a real pleasure to uh, to think about, write about, talk about aviation issues again. I work largely on clean energy now, but I try to keep up with, with aviation. And Tim Wu's op-ed was so beyond the pale that I, I simply had to respond to it. It's not just Tim Wu, though. I'm sure you have the same experience I do. I have many smart friends who say to me, you know, we used to have eight airlines. Now we have four. Why did we let that happen? And any bad experience they've had with the aviation sector, they attribute to consolidation. But there is, there simply is no empirical support for the view, however widespread, that consolidation, the consolidation that took place, particularly between 2008 and 2013, but uh, the, the first, say, 15 years of 2000 to 2015, it has not led to a reduction in competition or in any way harmed consumers. And let me let me point to three clear economic indicators of that. First of all, the number of competitors on individual city pair markets has gone up, not down. Yes, at the national level, the big four have a 75% market share, up from some lower number before consolidation. But those national market share numbers don't matter. Airlines don't compete in a national market. They compete on individual routes. And if you look at the individual route level, competition has increased. DOT data shows that the average number of competitors in U.S. domestic city pair markets has gone from 3.3 carriers in 2000 to 3.4 carriers in 2010 to 3.5 in 2022. This positive trend is due to the extraordinary growth of low-cost and ultra-low-cost carriers, and we'll talk more about that and to increase service by the legacy carriers post-consolidation. So that's number one, increased competition at the root level. Indicator number two is the extraordinary growth of low-cost carriers and ultra-low-cost carriers. In the last 20 years, and I'm going to lump them all and, and talk about LCCs, have grown at rates several times Uh, those of the big three legacy carriers in Southwest. If you look at JetBlue, Alaska, and Hawaiian Airlines, they've gone from 4% of the market in 2000 to 12% in 2022. 
and the ultra-low-cost carriers such as Spirit, Frontier, and Allegiant have grown even faster from 2% in 2000 to 13% last year. Notably, 2021 saw the launch of two new ULCCs, Breeze Airways, David Nealman, and Avalo Airlines, which now serve 35 and 37 airports, respectively. As a result of this growth by discount carriers, discount carriers, including Southwest, now carry nearly half of all U.S. domestic passengers, up from 24% in 2000. Conversely, the legacy network carriers have seen their collective market share drop from 73% in 2000 to 52% in the first half of last year. That's a remarkable change. Equally remarkable, even maybe more remarkable, 80 to 90% of U.S. domestic passengers now fly on routes that are served by at least one low-cost or ultra-low-cost carrier. That may be the single most important statistic there is on the state of competition in the U.S. airline market. Now, just one last thing. Why do I say that? Uh, why, why is the growth of LCC so important? It's because they benefit not just the passengers who fly them, but all passengers, because the presence of an LCC in a market imposes pricing discipline on, on other carriers. We're all familiar with the term the Southwest effect. Cliff Winston at Brookings has quantified it. Southwest presence in a market has led to a 30% reduction in fares on average. Now we have not just the Southwest effect, but the Spirit effect, the JetBlue effect, et cetera. So the growth of uh, LCCs and ULCCs has been uh, uh, had a tremendously positive impact on competition in the airline industries. And finally, and briefly, uh, the third indicator is airfares. And it's the ultimate measure of competition, and they have continued to decline. Airfares today are 30 to 50% lower in real terms than they were in 1978 when we deregulated the airline industry. And according to um, John Heimlich, A4A's analysis of DOT data, if you take into account inflation and ancillary fees, uh, air, average domestic ticket prices fell 22% from 2000 to 2019 and another 7% from 2019 to 2022. So for all of those reasons, competition in the airline industry is strong and it has not been diminished by consolidation. That's terrific analysis, Dorothy. But during the pandemic, the low-cost carriage did ramp up growth. But recently, we've seen them all struggle. They've lost a lot of money in the last four years in terms of the travel economy. What does it mean that the low-cost carriers are having such a hard time now? Ben, I'm familiar with Spirit's troubled balance sheet from the documents and press stories that I've read related to the proposed merger with JetBlue. And I think some of Spirit's problems, the Pratt geared turbofan engine, 
significantly increase. Labor costs may be specific to spirit. Others are, are I think, more general. I, I think the broader problem is that um, with the decline in business travel, much of it related to the ease of, uh, of doing business over, over Zoom, uh, substitution of telecommunications for aviation, the legacy carriers are now going after leisure travelers and, and thus competing directly with, with the LCCs. I think some of them, uh, all of them probably now have introduced unbundled fares, taking advantage of the great uh, pricing innovation that Spirit introduced when you were running Spirit. Um, so if that if that is indeed the explanation, then while the LCCs may be having problems, I think consumers are are benefiting. So I think the question is then, will consumers continue to benefit if we don't have um, a group of carriers um, like Spirit that are dedicated to to low cost service? And that's an existential question. I don't know that I have have the answer to to that. So just a little more on on JetBlue Spirit. The, yeah. the Justice Department victory blocking JetBlue Spirit has its roots in the argument of Wu and others who believe that consolidation has been bad for consumers and further consolidation would be worse for consumers. Um, what's, what's your view of that? What's your view of JetBlue Spirit ruling? Yeah, I, I've really struggled with that. I, I wrote about a little bit in this piece on, on consolidation. I hadn't... Uh, I didn't have a fully formed view, and I don't. I still. I'm not sure. I still do. Um, it, I've, I've read the ruling twice. I've reread the DOJ complaint. Um, I think that um, you know. On the one hand, I'm sympathetic to where uh, where DOJ is. And by the way, I think I may have implied in my article that this lawsuit by DOJ was a reflection of the new tougher Biden antitrust policy. I think now, um, having reflected on this, that the Obama administration probably would have brought the uh, uh, brought the suit as well. Clearly, DOJ loves Spirit, the largest ULCC. They view them as a maverick, and that is a term. That is a term that DOJ uses uh, for. In the case of Spirit, they describe it as a competitor that has often gone its own way in an industry characterized by coordinated behavior. So I'm sympathetic to where they were coming from, trying to preserve LCC competition. As I, I'm, I'm, that's critical. Um, my expectation had been that the case would come down to a comparison of the consumer losses from the loss in consumer welfare from passengers who would no longer have ULCC service compared to the benefits to consumers from this stronger uh, carrier, the combination of JetBlue and Spirit, that would be able to better take on uh, the legacy network carriers. Right. And I thought, I thought the loss in consumer welfare to passengers losing uh, ultra low cost service would be relatively small because entry is so easy in the airline industry, particularly in these in these markets, and particularly with all the divestitures that that uh, JetBlue and Spirit offered up. Um, 
in the end, the judge concluded that potential entry would not occur fast enough and on a sufficient enough scale to protect all the current consumers because of a variety of factors. He focuses a lot on aircraft procurement, but also the en engine issues that Spirit has had, air traffic controller shortages uh, and pilot shortages. First of all, I, I question how significant and lasting some of those impediments are, and I, I would really like to see the expert testimony that JetBlue and Spirit put forth on that, because I would, I think I could make a case that those are impediments that could be overcome. I mean, there's a used aircraft market. You don't get in line for new aircraft with, with Airbus. You go to the used aircraft market, for example. But more fundamentally, I think this is my my problem with the ruling. The judge is trying to maintain the status quo ante of all of the people who were served by spirit. He seems intent on protecting individual consumers as opposed to competition. And that is especially relevant because spirit has lost money for the last four or five years. The people spirit served will be served by another low-cost carrier, but only if it is profitable to do so. So let me let me give you a, a, a metaphor, an analogy. Spirit seems to me like a computer manufacturer that makes $400 laptops, but wants to start making $800 laptops. And the judge is in effect saying, nope, you have to continue serving the $400 laptop market. And even if that's what the Clayton Act, the antitrust law dictates, and I don't know, I'm not a lawyer, much less an antitrust lawyer. I don't know if this is a legal issue. I question whether as a practical matter, such a decision will have the desired effect if in fact there is a more profitable use for Spirit's assets. Now, one thought question is, could Spirit wet lease some or all of its assets to JetBlue? Probably not. That probably would run afoul of, of um, Judge Young uh, in antitrust laws. But you get the idea. Those assets, if they're more valuable in another use, are going to find their way way to that. So that's that's where I, I come out. I think the judge is trying to protect particular consumers as opposed to competition generally. And I, I think that's a very rigid approach to an industry as dynamic as the airline industry is. It's, it's, it's kind of a public utility approach. And we're, we got away from that 45 years ago in the airline industry. Mm -hmm. That's fascinating. A real interesting argument, Dorothy. So let's go up 20,000 feet. Do you still believe deregulation has been good for travelers? Yes. And, and by, by the way, a, a resounding yes to that. I, I spoke at, at Brookings. I was on a panel when they did their 40th anniversary of airline deregulation event in 2018. So I spoke at, at length. Um, uh, but I'll just, um, I'll just hit the 
the highlights. I mean, yes, it's been a, I think, a, a resounding success. It has democratized air travel. That's become a little bit of a trite phrase, but very few people flew. Uh, I didn't get on a plane till I, a commercial plane until I was 21 years old. Um, and that was, that was the norm. Um, now people fly all the time. So ex lower fares, expanded geographic access, improved service options, higher productivity. You know, the list is long. The criticism of airline deregulation and a number of Democrats and consumer groups who supported it have recanted is due to the impact on wages. Fred Kahn got a lot of, Alfred Kahn, the father of airline deregulation, uh, got a lot of hate mail from pilots, um, and to the decline in service. The decline in service is largely a function of load factor. Before deregulation, planes flew half full. That, that was the ultimate indicator that something was wrong. Uh, now, Planes fly 80 to 85% uh, full. That's not nearly as comfortable. But overall, airlines are giving passengers what they consistently show a preference for, lower fares at the expense of comfort and service. Um, so I, I, I like to say it's not much of a stretch um, to claim that airline deregulation brought us uh, the back half of the the plane, the half that was empty uh, under under regulation. Um, yes, the service isn't as good, but for passengers who complain about the service, they can pay to fly business class and they will be getting the comforts of pre-deregulation air travel at about the, the, the what they would have been uh, paying for it absent deregulation. Dorothy, the judge noted that the big four airlines are an oligopoly. How do you protect consumers from that? Well, it's, uh, you know, I, my traditional answer has been uh, low-cost competition. The, the benefits to consumers from airline deregulation have come largely from competition uh, by low-cost uh, carriers, uh, the Southwest effect, the JetBlue effect, the Spirit effect. And so maintaining low cost competition is, is the key uh, to uh, protecting travelers uh, in, mm -hmm. in an oligopoly. And that's, that's worked very well. Now you, you guys are, are posing this existential question of how you protect uh, LCCs in a, in a world where the, the big guys are emulating LCCs, they are adopting unbundled fares, and they are going after leisure travelers because of the loss of business travel. And I don't know that I have an answer to that. I mean, I think that's going to be a very uh, dynamic process that, that plays out. And I again, I worry about rulings like JetBlue Spirit that kind of that try to lock spirit into a, a uh, competitive business model that may no longer be uh, be the right right one but I don't I don't think I have uh, an answer to to that question but I do think I do think DOJ uh, is I, I think they are all over this issue I don't know that 
you know, I may not always agree with them, but I think, I think they, and I, I think even, you know, people like Tim Wu and, and so forth, they're, um, I mean, they're, they're trying to protect consumers in their own way. I don't necessarily think it's the right way, but I think they, they recognize that uh, we need to protect the, the benefits of airline deregulation. Hmm. Well, maybe Spirit should sell $400 laptops. <laughs> well, if there's a market, if there's a market, <laughs> if, there, if the market, I mean, the, you know, there, there's a suggestion that, that their assets could uh, generate more revenue in other ways. And I think if that, if that is true, those assets are going to find their way one way or another, despite the judge's ruling, they're going to find their way to that higher, uh, more profitable yeah. um, calling. Uh-huh. It might take time, but yeah. I think you're 100% right. Yeah. Before we let you go, yeah. if you were queen of the world <laughs> and you could change one thing about airline competition, what would it be? Well, so I'm a policy wonk and, and I tend to think about what can the federal government do because th- that was my role for so for so long. And the federal role with aviation is, is three big big things. Um, it's antitrust provision, and I think the federal government has done a, a good job of that. You know, we can debate the latest ruling. Uh, second, safety regulation, and, uh, and then the third is infrastructure. And um, I traditionally answered this question by focusing on I think where the federal government falls down is infrastructure, and I'll come back to that. But I think I think we've seen recently they're falling down in the safety area as well. And so I think my my overall message, and then I want to say more about infrastructure, is the Department of Transportation should quit worrying about the width of the seats and whether to regulate ancillary fees. And by the way, the Department of Justice. I mean, they are their complaint in the Spirit JetBlue case is an advertisement for the benefits to consumers of unbundled fares, which are synonymous with ancillary fees. And there is a real irony mm-hmm. that have the Department of Justice lauding unbundled fares at the same time that you have the president going after junk fees, and that's fine, but using the airline industry as exhibit A, that's just, I mean, White House economists, come on, you know, don't, he shouldn't be using the airline industry as exhibit A and the Department of Transportation trying to regulate ancillary fees. So back to my my point about uh, safety and infrastructure, DOT needs to, Department of Transportation, you know, quit worrying about seat width and you know, all these little consumer things and focus on on the big things. We have, my hair would be on fire now if I were still in the White House, given the number of runway close calls that we've had and the other, the other safety issues. I mean, we do have a problem. Now, let me say a word about infrastructure because my white whale for 30 years has been the air traffic control system and trying to get it out of the FAA. Air traffic control is a business. It is a 24-7 service business. It should not 
be operated by the federal government. The incentives are all wrong, and it, sh it should not be operated by the same agency that regulates safety because the FAA is, is both operating the air traffic control system and regulating the air traffic control system. That's a conflict of interest. So we tried in the Clinton administration to spin it off as a government corporation. There have been other attempts, the most serious in 2018 when Bill Schuster chaired the House Transportation Committee and had a real passion for creating a Canadian style system, NAV Canada, which is a, a, a privatized air traffic control system run by stakeholders. Um, that failed because of opposition from business aviation largely. But if I could do one thing, it would be it would be to to change that and to uh, get the at a, at a minimum get the air traffic organization out of the FAA into some other part of the the federal government. But ideally, create a Canada-style air traffic control system. As I recall, you guys created the air traffic organization yes. uh, as yes. a semi-separate entity with a CEO and all, and that was sort of step one. And yes. and when Schuster was doing it, the the air traffic controllers union was on board and in yes. favor of of going to a Nav Canada type system. Um, yes. Do you do you think it can ever happen realistically? You know, we had. I mean, the, the stars were definitely aligned in 2018. We had, um, we had this chairman of Chairman Schuster passionate about the issue. He wanted to, this to be his legacy. That's number one. Number two, we had a once in a generation leader of NATCA, the National Air Traffic Controllers Association. Yeah. Uh, and he, he felt that this was the right thing for his members because he felt the alternative was going to be lay layoffs and the sort of problems that we're seeing play out. Uh, and then we, and we had a, a Republican in the, in the white house in the end, um, you know, none of that was enough to overcome the opposition of uh, not, it's not so much the, the GA pilots like you, Scott, AOPA, it's, it's the business jets NBAA who, get a huge, you know, billion, $2 billion subsidy from the, the current system and want to protect it. And that was not enough. Trump didn't do anything to further the cause. We their secretary of transportation was not particularly knowledgeable. And so, so it didn't happen. So I, I I'm not particularly optimistic, but I think, I, I think things can change. I think these, these runway, uh, collisions. I talked to somebody who was on that committee that was set up to look at this issue. And I said, do you think there's any, any hope of um, going after privatization? And he said, well, I think the people in the FAA recognize they may not be able to fix the problem without doing that. But it's still, at the end of the day, it's a huge, it's a huge political lift. So I've talked about uh, the need for uh, some kind of Manhattan Project type yeah. independent effort. Like, let's get all the stakeholders, all kinds of smart people in the room and come up with a plan. And, and that's the plan and a, and a plan for modernization and a plan for how are we going to hire and train qualified, safe air traffic controllers for the next, uh, you know, generations. Um, yeah. is, is there yeah. any merit in that? 
Yeah. Yes, I think so. I think, I mean, you know, I think let's not have the best be the enemy of the good. I think mm. there are two issues that we need to tackle controller shortages. And I think that's largely a, a funding issue. And then the lack of appropriate technology on, on runways in airports, airports are the runways. That's the most dangerous uh, place in terms of aviation safety. And that's where we are seeing accidents. And it's because the FAA has not deployed the kind of uh, runway incursion detection technology that the National Transportation Safety Board has been telling them to to get to deploy. They simply haven't done it. And I think, again, that's uh, that's a funding issue. So I have not traditionally said funding was the problem for the FAA. It was rather um, a problem of a government agency trying to run uh, what amounts to a business. But I do think I do think funding uh, is key. And I think that that kind of a Manhattan project can help focus um, focus attention on that. We, we have underfunded um, the FAA. Yeah. yeah. Well, Dorothy, this has been fascinating. Thank you so much. It's uh, it's great to catch up and great to to hear uh, your your logical thinking and, uh, and and smart insights into these really crucial issues. Um, we really appreciate you being with us today. Thank you so much. I've really enjoyed it, Ben. Great to 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 meet you over the over the computer. Thank you, Dorothy. It's been great. We'll be right back with more Airlines Confidential. Promotional consideration provided by the Archive.net. Celebrating 20 years with a fresh new look and over 60,000 items of AvGeek goodness. It's the hub of air transport history and you're welcome aboard. The Archive.net. Thanks again to Dorothy for offering some great perspective on what's going on in today's airline industry. Ben, I mentioned this last week, but we are excited to announce that Airlines Confidential will be on stage for a keynote podcast at Aviation Festival Americas on May 15 and 16 in Miami Beach. This is the 16th year for Aviation Festival Americas, And it brings together more than 250 influential leaders from the U.S., Canada, and Latin America. If you'd like to attend, listeners can get a 50% discount by going to airlinesconfidential.com, clicking on the Aviation Festival banner ad, and using the promo code AC50. It's going to be a great event, and we are really looking forward to being part of it. Okay. Eric from Dallas opens the mailbag this week with a timely merger question. Hello, Ben and Scott. I'm a huge fan of the podcast and have been listening for years from when I was in flight training to now at a regional carrier. In the beginning of the year, you mentioned predictions for 2024. You predicted more mergers in the ULCC space and the regional sector. I fly for a United affiliated carrier and it has always been rumored that United will consolidate their regionals. What do you guys think United's plan is for their regionals? Will they move to a wholly owned model like American and Delta, or will they continue to remain flexible with their partners? I fly one of their 50-seat aircraft and have always worried about the volatility of our shrinking market. Our company recently announced we are exiting Denver to further expand our Houston 
and Washington hubs. Our company is working on getting the 170s, but the FAA process has been slow. Do you think we will run out of time before United ultimately decides they don't need us? Thanks, Ben and Scott. What do you think, Ben? Good luck, Eric. I don't think UA is going to completely push you out. But recognize 50C jets are on their way out everywhere. They're not efficient. But big jets like the 737 can't do all the regional flying. So get yourself into even a slightly bigger plane. Stay flexible and you'll be okay. Yeah, I agree. Eric, you're going to be fine. Uh, The more hours you get flying jets, the more attractive you'll be at a big airline. Uh, There's going to be plenty of pilot hiring going on. So um, don't worry about it. Enjoy the flying and, uh, and, and stay safe. Justin writes to us from somewhere over Texas. I am on a new JetBlue 321 Neo, and it is the first JetBlue plane I've seen with a mid-cabin lav. I was wondering if you could provide insight as to how a company decides on a configuration like this. I know American, among others, has the mid-cabin lav on the A321, but it seems to be new for JetBlue. What drives that decision when it could have been a few extra seats and revenue? Does weight factor in much or simply install cost versus comfort? I would have said Ben's answer is as many seats as possible, but even Spirit took out some seats for big front seats. Was that simply a decision, the big front seat, that can charge a premium, or did aircraft weight dictate that they couldn't add the weight of those typically uh, maybe five extra seats, so they got creative with the big front seat. Love the show. I've been listening since the beginning. Thanks, Justin. Very insightful of you. You know, the 321 is a long fuselage, and there are issues of weight and balance, not total weight from the middle doors to the front and the back. So when airlines work with Airbus on how to configure, it's called the LOPA, Location of Passenger Amenities. Those are the seats, labs, galleys, etc., They try to put everything in that's needed, but that keeps the plane balanced as well. I don't know this for sure, but I'm guessing the mid-cabin laugh on the JetBlue 321 was a compromise to get better weight and balance given the mint product they put in the front of the plane. In terms of 
spirits, BFS. Interestingly, we took no seats out when we created that product. Spirit had been a two-class carrier, but really had no business selling a first class. So we took out the curtain, didn't dedicate a flight attendant, took out the food, and said, we'll just charge for the nicer seat because at the time, we couldn't afford to take them out and put more seats in. <laughs> so instead, we put more seats behind. It would be different if done today. But that's how the BFS was created. Good to know that history. That that's that's really, really interesting. Thanks, Ben. And Ben, speaking of history, you may have been at Continental when the 737-800 came out and offered coast-to-coast range. I did a story, front page story back then, about very long flights on small airplanes and quoted Greg Brenneman, the president at the time, as admitting the plane was one lav short of a full load. The long flight resulted in long lines at the lab, especially in the days when there was only one movie on the in-flight entertainment system, and guess what happened as soon as the movie ended? As a result of the story, Continental added mid-cabin labs to the plane, and I was told, dubbed them the McCartney Lab, my proudest accomplishment. Alas, the labs came out quickly in an industry downturn. Airplane bathrooms have gotten so small these days that it's painful for passengers. It's just a reminder that what matters most is the number of seats, not the size of your bladder. And on that note, that's all for another episode of Airlines Confidential. We'll be back next week with much more. Thanks again to Dorothy who, along with me, has never had a laugh named after them. (laughs) (laughs) So long, everyone. This podcast is produced by Mass Media. Info at massmedia.net.